morning, everyone. Um, you can call me Danny. So away we go. So I'm going to show you a few slides of different hoarding situations. And one of the things that's interesting about this particular one that demonstrates uh, the organizational skills of someone with hoarding disorder, you'll notice this is a living room and there's just a garden rake in the middle of the living room. Now, for most of us, we kind of have the ability to sort through different kinds of objects and determine where their homes should be. Uh, people with hoarding disorder, not so much. So that's why you'll see something that's so out of place in the middle of the living room. Um, hordes can take on all kinds of different looks to them. Some people, um, you know, they're hoarding lots of clothing or food, things like that. Other times it looks to us like trash, but I guarantee you to the person who is experiencing uh, this hoard, this clutter, uh, this is not trash to them, it's their treasures. Hoarding, unfortunately, can also include animals, um, something that can be real difficult to deal with. And then this kind of demonstrates to me how people with hoarding problem solve creatively around the hoarding problem. So this is a living room. You can tell there's a fireplace behind that microwave that's sitting up there. And what's interesting is the reason that the microwave is sitting in the middle of the living room is because the kitchen is so hoarded out that it's made cooking impossible. And what you can't see is there's also like a little mini fridge uh, somewhere in there too. And um, so instead of addressing the fact that the kitchen got too cluttered and uh, can't be used to do uh, cooking anymore, what you have is, oh, I'll just buy another microwave and I'll cook in the living room and I'll make space there. And then I'll also have that mini fridge as well or an ice chest. So they problem solve around the hoarding because they can't figure out how to address the clutter. Here's a cluttered kitchen, speak of the devil. What's interesting about this slide is that the hoarding is extreme. So it goes all the way up to the ceiling. And if on the, you look at the left-hand side, you'll see that it goes um, all the way. That's not a closet. That's actually another room that this place is so severely hoarded out that everything goes to the ceiling and it blocked all the access even into the room. And like I said, people hoard all different kinds of stuff. Some people are more informational or paper um, hoarders per se. So this person likes to have all sorts of uh, papers and magazines and mail maybe. Okay, so what are we doing today? Uh, first, we're gonna talk about what hoarding disorder is as a diagnosis, different kind of symptoms, how we diagnose it, um, neurological elements, things like that. Um, next, we'll go into three different kinds of assessments so you can tell how severe the hoarding is, and it'll allow you to uh, do interventions based on those assessments. And then I divide up people who hoard into two different categories, clients who are open to getting help for their hoarding and clients who are a little resistant to getting help for their hoarding. So we'll be covering different strategies and interventions, and some of them you can use for both kinds of clients, but uh, we, I separate that out. 
Okay, so first we should define our terms. Um, what is a hoarder? Like, do I use the H word? So that H word is pretty laden with stigma. Uh, so you want to talk to your client about how they'd like to refer to the problem. Uh, I've worked with people that prefer to just call it the clutter, the stuff, the mess. They like to refer to themselves as pack rats. Um, some people talk about their collections. Some people like to really distance themselves and talk about it as the problem. Um, so I generally talk about people with hoarding disorder because they are not hoarders because that's not all that they are. But sometimes I will use the word hoarder just as a, a short-term way of referring to people with this or people with HD hoarding disorder. So that's how that goes. Okay, so um, this is a legit mental illness. Um, people with hoarding disorder oftentimes feel very ashamed of their spaces. Oh, so having, having HD does not mean that you're lazy or you're stupid. It's not some moral failing, but that's kind of the uh, societal input that one gets from that. So they start to take on that shame. But actually what we're finding more and more with the more neurological studies about HD, it's becoming more and more apparent that the brain of somebody with HD is simply wired differently than the brain of someone who doesn't have HD. Um, oftentimes I compare it to someone who has dyslexia. So up until someone is diagnosed with dyslexia, they might be getting a lot of pressure from their parents or from teachers or being made fun of by other classmates like, oh, you're stupid. Why can't you do this? And they start to take on that shame and uh, their egos kind of fall down into nothingness. Uh, but once they're diagnosed, they find out, oh, your brain is simply wired differently. So you're not seeing words and letters in the same way people without dyslexia see it. So now that we know that, we're going to give you, get you to an educational specialist, a reading specialist who can teach you tools and skills to work your way around that brain wiring. And that's the exact same thing that we can do here. So I find that when you're working with someone who's open to understanding and getting a little psychoeducation about hoarding, you can kind of release the shame and really frame it as, look, your brain's just wired differently. Let me give you different tools so that you can learn how to control or manage this brain wiring without having to live like this. Because kind of contrary to popular belief, most people with hoarding, they want to figure out ways of living with all the stuff because they don't want to give up all the stuff, but they can't figure out how to do that. And they don't like living the way that they're living. They don't like living in cluttered homes like that where they can't use their kitchen and all of that. So what is it? Okay, so hoarding disorder is the acquisition of and failure to discard a large number of possessions that appear to be useless or of limited value. So in other words, you bring in a bunch of stuff, but you can't seem to get rid of anything to make room for all that stuff. And from an outsider's perspective, these are items that are taking over the home and just don't seem to be that important or may even seem like trash. Second part of this is living spaces sufficiently cluttered so as to preclude activities for which those spaces were designed. So you can't use your bathroom to get ready in the morning. You can no longer cook a meal in the kitchen. 
Maybe you're sleeping on a chair in the living room because there's too much stuff on the bed. Um, and then finally, as with any kind of mental illness that's officially diagnosable, significant distress or impairment in functioning caused by the hoarding. So your life has simply become unmanageable because of the stuff for you, for your family, or for both. So it's important to really recognize that significant distress or impairment because oftentimes when I'm teaching these uh, trainings, people get that first year medical student syndrome where they start to like, when I go through the symptoms, they're like, I do that, I do that, I'm someone who hoards, oh no. So it's, you really have to have the significant distress or impairment in functioning because we all have to some extent, a lot of quote unquote mental illness symptoms from a lot of different things. Um, for instance, I am not technically obsessive compulsive, like I don't have OCD, but I will sit there and re-jigger the dishwasher to make sure all the dishes are loaded correctly um, in the dishwasher before I run it after my daughter or my husband has loaded it. Uh, there's no reason to do that. It just makes me feel better. And it's a little kind of OCD, but it's not causing me significant distress or impairment in functioning. So don't panic, you might not be a hoarder. Okay, so what kinds of stuff do people hoard? Um, most commonly, you're gonna find like papers, uh, newspapers, magazines, um, all sorts of junk mail, receipts, business cards, those kinds of things, bills. Um, very common also is clothing. Uh, oftentimes you'll see tons of clothing with the uh, tags still on them and, you know, maybe receipts in the bag that are 10 or 15 years old. Um, food, very common. As we saw in one of those slides, animals can be pretty common. And then just something we would refer to as trash. So is it about acquisition, bringing stuff in? or is it about difficulty discarding or letting go? So people that have HD have different balances of each. So each think of each person with hoarding disorder as a unique little snowflake and very different. So um, oftentimes what, they, what they're showing in terms of acquisition and, and, and discarding difficulties have to do with their insight into the problem and that varies too. A lot of people with hoarding disorder have very little insight into how bad things really are, how severe things really are. Um, saving and clutter problems tend to come first, usually because someone starts to show symptoms um, in adolescence. And so you have someone like usually parents or, or uh, some kind of attachment figure, some parental figure who has control of their financial resources, who's making them clean up their room, making them throw stuff away. So they don't have a lot of uh, living independence so they can't get as much stuff. Um, and sometimes you will find people with HD are compulsive shoppers. And sometimes compulsive shoppers aren't necessarily people with HD. You don't have to have one without the other. So uh, the latest uh, DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM-5, came out in 2013. And that was the first time that hoarding disorder was actually listed as an official diagnosis. It is um, kind of 
kissing cousins and uh, mirror image to something like OCD. So it's with OCD and the anxiety disorders because kind of at the base of hoarding is a lot of anxiety. Dr. Slichter, there was a question in the chat. Can homelessness trigger HD? That's a fabulous question. And um, so what we're going to talk about in a little bit is how sometimes HD comes around, you'll start to see symptoms in early adolescence, but sometimes it doesn't start until someone's in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and it usually has to do with something like some kind of major trauma that starts to like set it off. And so, yeah, someone who is homeless, uh, there tends to be a lot more people, and well, I have slides that talk about this, uh, with, with HD, if they've ever been unhoused. And that's because one, a lot of people get uh, evicted and lose their housing because of hoarding disorder. And then two, if, if they don't already have hoarding disorder, being one, being evicted and losing your housing can be a major trauma. But also if you're living on the streets, you're gonna be experiencing trauma maybe on a daily basis with like assaults or robberies or attacks, things like that. So if you didn't already have hoarding, it might have switched it on in the brain. Yeah, I hope that answered your question and I'll answer it in a little more detail in a few more slides. Okay, so comorbidity. So comorbidity is just kind of like a fancy word for those that don't know of like having more than one disorder at a time. So about 75% of people that have hoarding have some kind of comorbid mood or anxiety disorder. A full 50% could be diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Social anxiety is very common. Generalized anxiety is very common. A full 20% also meet the criteria for obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and then what I don't have on the slide because I don't have the actual statistics on it is that um, ADHD or ADD tends to also be something very common in this disorder. And usually, um, the comorbidity is the reason a client, if they're seeking help, is seeking help. So they're seeking help for their anxiety, for their depression, for the ADHD. They usually aren't going to volunteer the fact that hoarding is a problem. So here's where we get all nerdy. I promise it'll only be a few slides of nerdiness. Um, there are neurological and genetic components to hoarding disorder. So uh, research is suggesting that it's a genetic variant of obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, and they've actually found these genetic markers on chromosome 14. So if you're a geneticist, that's where you wanna look for it. Hoarding does seem to be genetic. It does seem to run in families. Um, there seems to be some damage or difference to parts of the frontal lobe. And as you might know, frontal lobe um, is responsible for impairments in decision-making, planning, anticipating future consequences of one's behavior, and it possibly could be related to some information processing deficits. Um, there's also some differences or abnormalities in the parietal and an occipital regions of the brain, and those kinds of differences can cause impairments in visual and spatial processing and visual memory. And there's also something called the cingulate gyrus, that has some differences in it with lower levels of something called glucose metabolism. And when you have these differences, it causes uh, impairments in focused attention 
hello, ADHD type symptoms, motivation, executive control, and emotional self-control. So something interesting that's more recently discovered about hoarding and the brain is something called the salience network. So we already knew about the salience network, but people with HD have completely different salience networks. So all these areas that are lit up on, on your slide are where all the salience network kind of connects in your brain. And this is a network of parts of your brain that tells you to, hey, pay attention, this might be important. So for instance, if like you're in a room and all of a sudden the lights start flickering on and off above you, your, your instinct is to everyone kind of looks up to find out what's going on. That's your salience network. So someone who has HD, their salience network are, are chronically underactive and it causes something that we refer to as clutter blindness. So um, if you've ever seen any of those hoarding shows, you might've noticed how the person who is hoarding just doesn't really seem to register the clutter, the mess around them. And like they're stepping over dead rats or maybe their species or just like having to climb over things, but it's just kind of not phasing them. That's clutter blindness. The brain is telling them that nothing is particularly important or out of the ordinary. Um, however, the salience network usually underactive, it goes from zero to 10 when they're asked to make a decision. It gets maxed out. So it's kind of like um, if you put on heavy metal music at the highest volume um, that you have, there's, there's no nuance, there's no subtlety to it. You can't just like hear the words. It's just loud noise. And that's kind of what's happening to their salience network when they're asked to make a decision. So I'll say to, you know, hey, Mary, you know, which thing would you like to keep and which would you like to throw away? This coffee mug or the Rolex watch? Which one do you think you should keep and which one should we discard? And the salience network goes on to overdrive and they can't make a decision and like, well, I don't know. They both seem really important. Research has found that somewhere between two and six percent of the population has hoarding disorder. And they're kind of more research is coming in resting on about five percent. Five percent of the general population could be diagnosed with hoarding disorder. This makes it the second most prevalent mental disorder just under depression. Depression is about seven and a half percent of the population. And with all, all, only a couple studies, possibly up to 22% of the homeless or formerly homeless population has hoarding disorder. And we talked about that a little earlier and that might be because one, they're evicted uh, for, for hoarding. And so they lose their housing. And two, if they're kind of genetically predisposed already and they haven't had any symptoms before, the trauma of just experiencing homeless, homelessness can like trigger them. And, you know, they started hoarding when they were 55 years old. So that explains that. So it's a big problem and no one's really talking about it. So as you've probably experienced, um, hoarding can get into the way of just a normal functional life. The clutter can be absolutely debilitating with your living spaces being completely unusable. 
that compulsive acquisition, that compulsive desire to continue to acquire and take in more and more can take up a lot of your time, can take up a lot of your financial resources, either through purchasing a lot of stuff, or maybe you have, I've seen people who have rented, you know, 10 different storage units to store all of their stuff. So that costs a lot of money. Um, and depending on how severe the level of hoarding is, it's probably unsafe, maybe even unsanitary. Think about all the, like, the fire dangers. Um, we live in earthquake country here in Southern California. So piles of stuff during an earthquake can fall and trap uh, someone or hurt somebody. Um, dust, dirt, mold, um, bugs, infestations, all of those kinds of things can, can be very um, unhealthy and unsafe. Um, and then often too, the embarrassment, the, the shame that they feel about the hoarding situation leads to a lot of social isolation, which can then lead, remember we talked about the comorbidity of like 50% of people with hoarding could also be diagnosed with depression, major depression. You know, I don't know, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, but it might be that the social isolation has kind of exacerbated some already depressed kind of feelings. Um, and then because of uh, difficulties in organization and stuff, again, because of the brain wiring and decision-making difficulties, there might even be problems um, at work if they have a job because they're unable to make decisions, they're unable to organize things and to stay focused, that kind of stuff. And that can lead to a lot of issues at, on the job. So as you are already aware, and what I've hopefully enlightened further is that this is really complicated. This is a really complicated issue. The, the clients that you have that are hoarders um, are probably your most draining and complicated and challenging clients that you will encounter. Um, and then if you're someone who has to maintain confidentiality, this can become really difficult because it's not just a mental health issue. There are so many other people that get involved in this. Um, so I sometimes am part of um, a different hoarding task forces in different counties and people that show up be, uh, to these meetings you have the fire department, you have animal control, code enforcement, vector control, adult protective services, child protective services. You have um, city attorneys, district attorneys, judges, um, homeowners associations, landlords, neighborhood councils. So it affects like so many, it has such a ripple effect that it makes that kind of shame that these people with HD have even more pronounced because it's like, it's everybody's business where if you're just someone who has just depression or just anxiety some or some other mental health issue, you can kind of keep it pretty private, uh, but not this. So if I had to sum up what hoarding disorder is, I would kind of say it's an avoidance behavior. So you have people that are trying to avoid decision-making because they have this fear of making the quote-unquote wrong decision, if you'll recall the salience network slide from a few minutes ago. So, like, so you have all these decisions all the time of what do I throw away and what do I keep? Um, there was an interesting study, uh, a brain study about decision-making 
where they hooked up people with HD and then people that didn't have HD to fMRI machines. Um, and the fMRIs are kind of like, you see in real time, the brain lighting up all the different parts of the brain that they're using. Um, and each of these participants were asked to bring junk mail from home. Um, and they were told they wouldn't have to throw it out if they didn't want to. And then they were asked to make decisions about whether to keep these various pieces of junk mail or to shred them. And unsurprisingly, the HD folks ended up keeping much more junk mail than the non-HD folks. But what's interesting is what was going on in their brains. There was excessive activation in the anterior cingulate cortex. And this is an area of the brain that involves decision-making, particularly in situations that have conflicting information or uncertainty. Also, an area called the insula had some elevated activity. And this part of the brain deals in strong negative emotions like disgust or shame. So basically, when someone with HD has to make a decision about an item or has to make a decision about what they're going to make for lunch, just any decision, um, their brains are attaching way too much value on this decision or on this item, and it makes it difficult or even impossible to, to throw things out or to make that decision because their brains are basically telling them you're making the wrong decision every single time. So it's kind of torturous. Um, so also people with HD avoid discarding. In other words, they're saving because when they discard, um, when they have to throw something out, uh, it brings up all sorts of really uncomfortable uh, feelings and um, like, like grief and anxiety and just basic distress. Um, and it makes them feel not in control of things. But if they start saving everything and they're not letting stuff go, they feel much more in control and they get really positive things, positive emotions by being around their stuff. Um, people with HD also avoid doing routine tasks, and we'll talk about this in a few more slides when we talk about schedules, daily schedules and daily structures. Um, so they're avoiding sorting their mail, returning phone calls, avoiding washing dishes, avoiding paying bills, avoiding paying rent, avoiding paying taxes. So eventually all of this avoidance can really get them into some trouble. So when they avoid all of these things, they're avoiding, again, the feelings, because most of us try to avoid feeling uncomfortable, try to avoid feeling anxious, try to avoid feeling sad or grief-stricken. And so if you can find ways around it, you're going to start to do that. So some people with HD could be diagnosed with kind of information processing deficits. Diagnosed might not be the right word. Um, they might have poor attention to the task at hand. So we talked about ADHD, ADD, um, difficulties in categorizing their possessions. Um, so they just can't figure out how to sort things. So it's like, am I sorting all these sweaters that I have? by lightweight or by color or by different use, I don't know. And they all seem to have this perception that they have a very poor memory when data kind of shows that their memories are on average neither better or worse than anyone else. Um, so they have everything kind of out so that they have these visual cues so that just kind of spark their memories. Um, and they also have difficulty using information 
to draw conclusions and make decisions. So imagine you have piles and piles of stuff to go through in your home. I mean, that would be overwhelming for anyone, but also imagine you had problems staying focused, categorizing and organizing things and making decisions. I mean, you wouldn't even be able to get started. Um, so kind of talking more specifically about memory problems, we talked about um, difficulty, how they can't choose categories, how to organize things, because they're afraid of forgetting how they decided to organize them, how they decided to categorize them. And they often exaggerate the importance of remembering something. So an insignificant newspaper article or a, a business card with a phone number on it are absolutely essential to remember. And they have this idea that there's just going to be these dire consequences if they forget. So I'm going to keep everything in sight so I won't forget. So let's talk about daily functioning. So this might seem counterintuitive, but a lot of people with HD are perfectionists. Um, it becomes so, so much so that it just becomes difficult for them to get started in doing any kind of uh, activity like decluttering because they can't figure out how to do it perfectly, how to get from A to B and have that perfect thing. So they get so overwhelmed that they just decide not to do it. And that's kind of this all or nothing thinking or perfectionism can fall into that. Um, oftentimes their daily rhythms kind of get upset. So maybe they'll start sleeping during the day or they have inconsistent eating patterns. And this can lead to some problems, particularly if they have some uh, chronic health conditions, because maybe it's difficult to take their prescription medications at the right times or with food, or maybe their medicines get lost in the clutter. Um, and just daily life tasks become much more difficult because of the clutter. So you can't use your tub or your shower or your sink in the bathroom. Maybe your toilet is clogged or not working and no one can come fix it because you're not letting them in because there's too much clutter and they can't get to the toilet. Um, clutter in the kitchen makes food preparation hard. You can't use your stove or your fridge or your freezer. Maybe there's so much clutter over your furniture. You can't even have a space to carve out and like sit down and watch television. Um, so this makes things really hard. And then of course, the clutter leading to those really unsanitary or unsafe conditions. So we're gonna look briefly at three different kinds of assessments that may be helpful to you. And you should have received these uh, as a PDF in your handouts. Okay, so let's first look at the clutter image rating. This was created uh, by Dr. Randy Frost. He was one of the pioneers of hoarding research. Hoarding research didn't even really start until like the 1990s. So we don't have a lot of research about it. So anyway, um, he's, he's a psychologist and a professor at Smith College in uh, Massachusetts. And he, he went into a, uh, an empty apartment and uh, he and his grad students, his psych, psych grad students, started to clutter the uh, living room, the bedroom, and the kitchen with more and more stuff, taking pictures as they went. And they eventually came to um, nine different progressively more and more cluttered pictures as a way of kind of assessing the level of hoarding. So let's take a closer look at the bedroom. Um, so there, you can see that like one, this 
there's pretty much no clutter all the way up to nine, which is basically clutter all the way up to the ceiling. Um, and then a kind of good rule of thumb is if you're looking at a four or above, you're probably looking at a hoarding situation. Um, so you can use this in a lot of different ways. Um, one is to kind of see what the client's level of insight is into the problem. So we, we talked about clutter blindness a little earlier. So let's say you go into somebody's home and you're looking at it and you're like, ooh, this is an eight. This is a level eight. So a good thing to do might be to ask your client, give your client, you know, say, hey, we're looking at your bedroom. Here is this thing called the clutter image rating. You know, where do you see one through nine, this, this thing? You've already determined it's an eight. So if they're looking at it and they look at their bedroom, look back and say, hmm, I would say a two or a three. Okay, that's really good information for you to have, because if they had said maybe a six or a five, it's closer, it's closer to the reality, but they're really way off. They have real clutter blindness. So that's really good information for you about what level of insight you're dealing with and how they really just don't see the reality of the situation. Um, this can also be used to um, kind of assess periodically once a month, once a quarter to see how your decluttering efforts with your client are going. Um, are, are these things staying the same? Do they going up? They going down? Um, if you can take pictures, if they allow you to pick, take pictures, that can be helpful too. But sometimes clients are too ashamed and don't want and are very private and sometimes get a little paranoid. Uh, with some populations, so they might not allow you to do that. And this can allow you and like if you're working on a team, let's say, to say, all right, so I just, you know, visited Mary last month and we were at a seven and now we're down to a five. So we're making progress. So that can be helpful for that. Um, yeah, so this, this also is used mainly in mental health circles. Uh, and I'm going to show you next kind of what other kinds of people use. So just make sure you know what level you're talking about, which rating assessment you're talking about. Uh, let me let me keep going. All right. So the clutter hoarding scale. This there's a group of professional organizers, a national organization called the Institute for Challenging Disorganization. And these are professional organizers who have extra training and working with people who have what they term challenging disorganization. And that could be anything from ADHD to to hoarding. Um, and this is the most and what they did was, as you'll see, they um, kind of have five levels. And um, it was really a way for them to help them determine when they're going into a home that's really cluttered, what was the proper level of uh, PPE that they should be wearing when going in in order to keep themselves safe and healthy. And this is what's really used outside of the mental health profession, like the fire department or the health department. Um, animal control. So if they're telling you, oh yeah, we got, went into this level four home, they're not talking about the clutter image rating level four, they're talking about this most likely. And here level two and above could be something that's a health and safety issue that needs to be addressed. So, um, 
So here we have the levels on uh, the vertical axis has levels one through five and the horizontal axis looks at different aspects of the issue. So um, it goes from structure and zoning, which is about access to entrances and exits, is the plumbing functioning, the electrical, how are the appliances doing, what's the structural integrity of the, of the house or the apartment. Um, next is animals and pests. So these are really for like animal care and control. Is, are they complying with local animal regulations? It's also an assessment for evidence of any infestations of like insects or rodents, those kinds of things. Household functions. Um, this is an assessment of safety and accessibility of rooms for their intended purpose. And then health and safety. Um, it's the sanitation levels in the household. Um, also management of prescription medications that kind of stuff. And then finally, something that we weren't familiar before, <laughs> most of us uh, until pandemic, but PPE, they actually, like I was familiar with an N95 mask only from this before the pandemic. Uh, so, but it recommends with each level, what you should be doing if you're going into these kinds of situations so that you protect yourself. Okay. And just another assessment that can be helpful for you. It's called the HOMES Multidisciplinary Hoarding Risk Assessment. And HOMES is an acronym that stands for Health, Obstacles, Mental Health, Endangerment, Structure, and Safety. It's supposed to be like a quick and easy, really brief assessment when you're going into the home. So um, don't worry if you're not like a structural engineer or a plumber. This is basically made for people who aren't Bob Vila to uh, the layman to assess the environment. Um, and it can also be helpful if you felt the need to get DCFS or um, Adult Protective Services involved to consult with them about the case. It gives them a good idea of what's going on in the home. So I'll let you take a closer look on your own. It's pretty self-explanatory. So like I said, I kind of divide up my HD clients into those that are a bit resistant for getting help and those who are a little more non-resistant and are wanting to tackle this problem. So it doesn't matter who you are, uh, who you're dealing with, you want to approach your client as an ally, not an adversary. Um, this is both for the resistant and the non-resistant folks. Uh, you want to ask to be invited in and respect them if they don't let you come in. Um, remember, you're a guest. And these clients have probably had a lot of experience with people coming into their home judging them and telling them how to live and what to do. You wanna ask permission before touching anything. Remember, you're a guest and their clutter is their treasure. And um, try not to be judgmental because judging them is the quickest way to get up walls put up um, and become their adversary rather than their ally. And then probably the most important thing that I felt to be helpful with any kind of HD client is just to be curious. Ask them about certain items. Wow, what an interesting collection of pens you have. Can you tell me about them? Or I noticed you have a raincoat sitting on top of your coffee table. 
Did you have a particular reason for having it there? Or what do you like about your stuff and the way it's organized? What don't you like about it? Is there anything you wish you could change? So, and it's really getting their side of the story too, because no one ever asks them. Um, you know, I know you've had several visits with property management and they've told you you have to clean up some things or you could face eviction. What, if anything, do you see as the problem? What do you think is the best way to solve the problem? And it's really good to get from them, you know, to, to start to develop that rapport with them so that they know that you're on their side and you're not just there to ask them to throw their stuff away like everyone else has been telling them to do. So let's talk about what I call my unicorn clients. And these are the people that are like, oh my gosh, I have a hoarding problem. I don't want to live this way anymore. Please help me. Very rare. Okay. So uh, first thing we want to do is get in the correct mindset. Uh, we want to talk to them about learning new tools, learning new strategies. Uh, talk to them about that dyslexia comparison where we're gonna learn ways of circumventing the HD brain wiring. So uh, a lot of times I talk to them, it's like, you know what, you've been trying for years and years and years, and you've spent hours and hours and hours of trying to organize your stuff, trying to declutter, and you haven't been successful. Well, of course not. It's like I've given you a screwdriver and I've told you to dig a giant ditch. Well, it doesn't matter how hard you try, you, you have the wrong tool, but if I gave you a shovel, oh my gosh, and you started to learn how to use it and you build up your muscles and stuff, you could really be a ditch digging machine after a while. So it's the same thing here. I'm going to give you some tools so that you can work around that brain wiring. And also practice makes better. We don't want to say perfect because remember, a lot of them are perfectionists. Um, we're going to give them these new tools, but you have to practice them. So if I were to set you in front of a piano when you've never played a note before and you start trying to play, you're going to be horrible at it and it's going to feel really uncomfortable and you're going to really not be great at it and you're probably going to feel bad about it. But the more you practice, the more you, more you learn, the better you're going to get, you're going to get. I mean, you may not be Liberace status, but you're still going to be a lot better with practice. So encourage them to practice these skills and know they're not going to be perfect at it the first time out. So we, we talked about that kind of paralyzing perfectionism that affects a lot of people with HD. Um, and then that, that fear of not achieving their goals can sometimes hamper progress because it paralyzes them and they won't even get started. So if a client is really willing to work and start to look at things and start to make decisions and declutter, uh, we wanna give them timed goals if you have that luxury of having time to declutter something um, rather than, uh, you know, let's get this coffee table decluttered by Saturday. So if instead you could say, hey, why don't you work for 20 minutes a day, Monday through Friday on decluttering, and then we'll kind of come back and see how you did. So they can be perfect with time. If they're struggling with discarding, you can work with them to figure out why they're having trouble with the discarding, and we can have more tools for that. And, um, but they might come to you and be like, oh, Dr. Danny, 
I, you know, I worked my butt off and I didn't discard anything this week. I'm so disappointed in myself. Like, oh, well, our goal was that you worked for 30 minutes for, for four days a week. What did you do? Well, I guess I worked for an hour um, for like four, for three or four days. It's like, oh my God, then you were perfect at it. Great job. Now let's figure out when you were trying to declutter what was going on that was stopping you from letting stuff go. Let's work on your tools and let's practice these skills so we can make it better. Um, psychoeducation, very important. Um, so letting them know about the neurology of the brain, sharing that with them about that brain wiring can be so helpful. Um, also, if you get nothing else from this training, go buy the book Buried in Treasures. I have no um, financial interest in this book, but uh, some of the pioneers in hoarding research wrote this book. It's in its second edition. It's about 15 to 20 bucks on Amazon, depending Um and it's basically like a self-help book for people with hoarding disorder. It gives you a lot of information about what hoarding disorder is and the brain wiring and the symptoms and all of that. It has these little self-tests that you can give yourself to kind of figure out what kind of hoarding you're doing, if it's more about acquiring or more about not letting go or saving. Um, and then it has some cognitive behavioral tools that can kind of start to get you more organized and getting your stuff cleaned up. Um, and then after the book was published, the authors then wrote this free PDF, just Google uh, Buried in Treasures Facilitator's Guide, and you will come up with, it's like a 120 page PDF, and it's how to start your own Buried in Treasures group. And they kind of structured it out and they wrote it of, going through as a group for any Joe Schmo off the street, you don't have to be a psychologist, to start a group with a bunch of people with HD and go through the book week by week and do different lessons and talk about, have different discussions. So if you don't have a group that you want to get together, I've often suggested that therapists or other or case managers or other people that work with um, people that hoard, that they get the book and that they download the facilitator's guide and just do it one-on-one -on -one with their client as a way of uh, making progress with them. Um, another great place to get information about hoarding disorder is the International OCD Foundation's website. So that's iocdf.org. And that's really good information to share with your client as well. Um, so, Another tool for those willing clients is to have, a client, have them create a, a vision plan for their home. Like what do they want it to look like? Have them describe it in detail or make a collage or draw or sketch um, and have them think about how do they want each room to function? What does the client imagine using the space for? I mean, maybe they want to have book clubs and have their friends come over again or they, they can't have holiday dinners with their family because the table's too cluttered and they can't wait to cook in their kitchen and have a big Thanksgiving with everybody. Or maybe their home is so cluttered that their grandchildren aren't allowed to come over because it's not safe and they just, they want to contribute and maybe do daycare for their, their young grandchildren so their par the parents can work. So figure out like what's in it for them 
um, and how they want to live, because that's going to help to guide and motivate them to clean up the this, this space. Um, and also, we're going to use this vision plan in a couple different places through some other tools later on. Okay, so um, you're going to develop an action plan with your client. So what is the time frame that you're looking at in terms of this decluttering? Is he going to be evicted in one month? Or is this something that you can take a little more time with? Um, so in a time crunch, depending on the financial resources at your disposal, I would really recommend working with a professional organizer who specializes in hoarding. Um, or there are clean out companies that specialize in hoarding like Steraclean. I think they like 1-800-HOARDERS is their website. Um, and these are people that understand what it's like to work with people with HD, understand the brain wiring and can make it as not as traumatic as it possibly could be. But if, if you have time to work more slowly, it's not going to be as traumatizing. So, and also, you know, you're going to be working on the skills so that they can actually maintain it when it is decluttered. Um, but I do understand there are some time crunches that you're often work, you know, going to be facing. Um, so you want to identify what are the most useful spaces to clear first. And by useful, if this is useful for the client, um, is it going to be clearing out the shower because they have to go to the YMCA to shower right now? Or um, maybe there are people that like, oh gosh, I, I've been collecting recipes or I watch the Food Network religiously and I just want to cook in my kitchen but it's too cluttered. So maybe starting to clear out the kitchen and the counters and all of that is gonna be really motivating for them when they're starting to, to use their spaces as they envision them using it for. So, um, and then also we want to address any um, safety issues that might be there too. Uh, so like I've, I've had clients where they have all of these very old uh, yellowed uh, dry newspapers around a gas stove, that, that's probably a bad idea. Or uh, maybe there's, there's mold to address or uh, fecal matter or things like that. You know, you've got to identify those as well. And they might not see them. You might have to be able to kind of really identify what the safety are, issues are for them and help them figure out a way to clean it up. Okay, so I came up with something called the five box technique. It can also just be the two box technique, but I find people get, people with HD get a little persnickety a lot about what, when they're discarding stuff, like what, what they're gonna do with their stuff. So, I mean, it could be as simple as you have a keep box and you have a discard box and you're gonna pick up an item one by one and decide, am I keeping it or am I discarding it? So when we get a little more complicated with the five box techniques, it's the throwaway in the trash box, there's the recycle box, there's the donate box, there's the keep box, and then there's the ASAP box. The ASAP box is kind of like, oh my God, there's that bill that's like two months overdue. I need to pay this when I'm done with this decluttering session. Or, oh my God, I finally found my wedding ring. And it's like that box where you want to keep stuff aside that's really important that you need to tend to um, after your decluttering session. So the rules are 
you need to deal with each box as soon as it's full. So if you fill up the donate box before you start to make another decision about an item, you need to wrap it up and you know put it in the trunk of your car so you can take it to the Salvation Army or Goodwill or wherever you're gonna donate it or take it out to the recycle bin or take it out to the trash. Um, and then with the keep box, when that gets full, you're going to, we have that vision plan of what their home is gonna look like and how it's gonna function. So um, you're gonna start to place the items where they're supposed to be living eventually. So like that garden rake in the middle of, of the living room, we wanna keep it, okay, so, we're going to put that, you know, out on the porch or, you know, in the shed or in the garage. Where is it going to live? And it doesn't matter right now if the eventual home is too cluttered. You just get it as close as possible to where its home is eventually going to be. And if you want, you can like tape a little note on it that says keep so that when you get to that area to declutter, you know, you already made that decision. So hopefully that makes sense. And then there's part two. So you have this really great client and they've gone through the whole house and everything um, that is left is in where near by where their homes are supposed to be. All the items homes are supposed to be and they have little notes on it that say keep. So we went through everything. And now we can, the client can see if all of their keeps can fit. Uh, Spoil alert, they're not gonna fit. So now we have to start to make rules for themselves. The reason I like to make rules is because we already know what happens when someone has to make a decision about something that has HD. Remember the salience network and all of that? It's, it's not fun. So if there's a rule for something, the decision's already made for them. So um, let's see. So, okay. Uh, let's say you have uh, 37 pairs of black pants. Now, obviously that's too many pairs of black pants to actually fit in their closet or in their chest of drawers. So now we need to make some rules about what is the appropriate amount of black pants to have. So you kind of work with them and they say, all right, seven. Okay, seven pairs of black pants. We'll see if that fits in eventually, but we'll see. All right, so now we're gonna sort through these 37 pairs of black pants and we're gonna find the ones, we're gonna let go of the ones with holes in them or that are ripped or that don't fit anymore or that aren't you know, in fashion anymore. And we're only gonna keep the ones that you know, are in style and that fit us and that flatter us and all of that. And we whittle it down to seven. So now we have this rule, you're only allowed to have seven pairs of black pants. So I went out, and I went to Goodwill and I found the nicest pair of black pants. I love this pair of black pants and I wanna bring it home with me. But my rule is I only have seven and I already have seven at home. So if I choose to bring these black pants home, I have to let go of one of my ones from home to make room for it. And so that's where the rules can happen. And I'll talk about this more in detail for themselves uh, a little later. Um, something that's kind of more therapist-y, so I apologize if this is a little out of your wheelhouse, 
something that we do a lot with people that have OCD is something called exposure with response prevention. And this is for something for people that have a lot of anxiety when they're thinking of discarding something. Um, so you want to start with something that's an easy object. So, you know, here's, here's my water bottle. And um, Mary, you love your water bottle. You also have 43 water bottles. So let's pretend that we're going to donate this water bottle. So I want you to rate your level of distress thinking about letting this go from zero to 10. Oh my God, it's a 10, it's an 11, it's, an, it's a hundred. I can't think about it. I'm gonna have a panic attack thinking about it. Great. All right, we're gonna put this aside and uh, I'm gonna set a timer for five minutes and we're gonna, we're gonna talk about what's going on for you and your body. Like, where are you feeling the anxiety? Or we're gonna just distract ourselves and talk about the movie that you saw last weekend, whatever. Timer goes off five minutes later. Okay, so before you were at a level 10 of distress, when you think about discarding this object, where are you now? Hmm, maybe a 9.3. Oh, so it went down. Yeah, okay, I'm setting another timer for five minutes. And you keep doing that until it gets down, hopefully to like a zero or a one or a two. Um, and what that's doing is all of that avoiding they've been doing, they've been avoiding having these feelings. It's letting them know that they actually can have these feelings and work through them and that the feelings aren't going to overwhelm them or kill them and that they're going to fade away because the human body cannot deal with an intense feeling. It, you cannot feel it for longer than 30 seconds, maybe a minute, like you can't be at that level 10, even like the good feelings, like, oh my God, I just won the lottery. Woo! Well, after like a minute or two, I still won the lottery and I'm still pretty happy about that, but I'm now like a level eight in terms of my joy and elation with it. So it's going to go down, but it only goes down when you start to sit with the feeling instead of avoiding the feeling. And so this is what it's teaching them how to deal with those uncomfortable feelings and acknowledging that this is really hard for them because their brains are wired to attach a lot of importance to their items so much so that they feel genuine levels of grief and loss when they have to let these things go and validating that for them. Okay, so another kind of more therapisty type of intervention is called the downward arrow. And this is something that you use when a client is stuck about whether or not to discard an item. You start to ask them questions. Well, what might happen if you discard this? And what would be bad about that? And what would be bad about that? And this really gets to the heart of the concern. So I'll give you an example. So I had a client that didn't want to discard a Smithsonian magazine because it had an interesting article about Amelia Earhart. And it also had a picture of a dinosaur that she thought her son might like. So I said, well, what might happen if you discard this? Well, if I wanted to reference the article about Amelia Earhart, I wouldn't have it. Or if my child wanted a picture of a dinosaur, I wouldn't have it. Oh, okay. And what would be bad about that? Well, I'd feel stupid for not having saved it. And what's bad about that? Well, it's important to me that I have knowledge to share with others at hand. And it's important to me that I'm a good mom. 
up. So this is familiar territory, particularly if you're a therapist, talking about these core beliefs that they have and challenging them. So does having an article about Amelia Earhart make you a smart person? Does having a dinosaur picture, just in case your kid wants a dinosaur picture, make you a good mother? What, what makes a good mother? Is it about having pictures or is it about other things? And they start to kind of see that the panic about hanging on to the stuff is really related to these core beliefs about who they want to be and what they want to become. So I hope that's clear. Okay. Danny, there was a, a comment who said, I found using the Marie Kondo, does it bring me joy, helps me to reduce the items I am keeping. Uh-huh. Well, then you don't have hoarding disorder because every item brings them joy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of like a good way of telling it. Yeah, it, because everything brings them joy. That's why they've saved it. Everything has a purpose. Everything makes them feel. And the thought of letting it go is, is hard. Yeah, I too enjoy Marie Kondo. I like her Netflix shows and everything but it, it just doesn't work with people with HD. So um, homework. So you're probably only gonna be seeing this client of yours maybe one hour a week. And if your client has a ton of stuff to deal with, you're not gonna obviously get through it doing exposure with response prevention for like you know, an hour a week. They're gonna need to do some homework. So you wanna encourage your client to schedule the homework and you want to kind of build up their practice muscle to more and more minutes per day. Cause they may only start out being able to do five, 10 minutes at a time. Um, and that's fine, but the more they practice it, the more they're gonna be able to handle. And we obviously also don't wanna have this all or nothing thinking, this perfectionistic thinking of, I'm gonna clean everything today. I'm gonna work for 12 hours straight because then you get burnout. So we wanna help them be more realistic about what to do every week. Um, and in the beginning, like we talked about before, it's more about staying on task for the assigned time than it is about actually making progress with the clutter and, and discarding stuff. Um, and we, we want to we wanna make it a win. We want them to have those wins of like, yes, you, you did all of your homework this week. You worked for 20 minutes, three times. That's great. Now let's talk about, you know, what, what were some of the challenges you came up while you were trying to discard. And again, always focusing on the useful areas or the safety issues first. Um, we talked about how their daily rhythms, their daily schedules often get upset. Um, so, and their um, sleep routines, their daily routines, they can get disrupted. This can exacerbate the depression they're having, the social isolation. Um, so we want to help our clients to create a structured day, some kind of routine. This will help with the depression quite a bit too. So first of all, we want to have one calendar and um, because sometimes they'll have 25 different calendars and they'll be writing different things in different calendars. We wanna focus on having one calendar and we wanna decide where is this calendar's home so it doesn't get lost in the clutter. Maybe it's in the client's purse or maybe it's by the client's um, bedside table, something like that. But it have to, we have to decide where it lives. And we also wanna schedule in for them 
fun time, relaxation time, time to, you know, meet, be with their family or their friends, social time. Um, anyway, so if you have a client who's that perfectionist type and they have this schedule, it's like, oh, well, I blew it because, you know, I, I woke up 20 minutes late and I didn't get to do all the stuff that I was supposed to do. And I didn't go meet my friend for coffee because I didn't feel like it. And so I blew it. Well, no. So tell me about percentage wise, what would you estimate is the percentage of time you stuck with the schedule that we had? Because this is, this is a skill. This is a work in progress. I don't know, maybe 30, 40%. Okay. Let's say 30%. Next week, let's do this again. And if they've made improvements, maybe they got to 40% next time or 45% compliance. So we can even create a chart for them so they could see their progress. Again, that all or nothing thinking, that perfectionistic thinking, we don't want that to be um, a way of getting in the way of this. And this is a skill. This is a tool. This is like playing the piano. It takes practice to learn how to live like this. Another tool that can be helpful is something called uh, the acronym OHIO, which stands for only handle it once. So um, as we have our five boxes or our two boxes and we're decluttering, what we usually do is we pick up a thing and now we have to make a decision. Do I keep it or do I discard it? And a lot of times what happens is this thing called churning where someone can't make that decision because again, we're asking them to make a decision and you're like, uh, I don't know, I'll just put this over here for now. And I'll get to it later. And so they're, all they're doing is just moving stuff. They're not making any decisions. They're moving stuff around and it's not doing any good. So we want to force a decision. So the only handle it once means as soon as you pick it up, you have to make a decision about the item. I'm either keeping it or I'm discarding it. And it doesn't matter in the beginning if they're keeping everything, at least they're making a decision and they're practicing it and they're practicing feeling the uncomfortable feelings that come with making a decision. And then for more advanced folks, we have the five second rule um, where someone has to make a decision about the object in five seconds or less. So that's that can be a helpful thing. Uh, hula hoop. So this is a good technique for your clients that have some attention deficit issues or have the perfectionism issues or are feeling really overwhelmed about where to start. You can place a hula hoop over an area and you just are working within the hula hoop, right? Um, you can even like, if they're still getting distracted, put like sheets or towels around the hula hoop so you don't see the clutter around it. And you're only doing things that are within the hula hoop and you're just drilling down. Um, and this is really helpful because like, I've had clients that were doing really well. Come to me, Dr. Janney, I'm so frustrated. I threw out 25 bags, garbage bags full of stuff. And my room looks exactly the same. Because if you have like a level eight or a level nine, you know, hoard going on, you take out 20, 25 garbage bags, it's going to look the same. There's just too much stuff. But if you took just five garbage bag stuff of like one or two areas within that hula hoop, you're going to see a major difference. So this can be really motivating too, as they start to like drill down and really see progress. 
Um, we'll talk about the blue painter's tape with uh, this another handout that I have too, but this can be really helpful too. So we have this clutter blindness going on. We have this inability to kind of see spaces in the same way just because of the brain wiring. So this, like using something called blue painter's tape, which you've all seen, it doesn't like hurt the paint on the walls and stuff. And it, you know, you can take it off and put it on. This can help to create visual boundaries that can be helpful with the clutter blindness. Um, I've used this for, for clients like where I knew someone was moving into a new space and had issues with hoarding. And we went before they moved in to the empty apartment and we put blue painter's tape like in that swing of the door. So we like that kind of arc of that quarter moon arc of where the door swings because we wanted to make sure it didn't get cluttered so we could open and close the door. So they knew not to put objects in the inside of that um, thing. We also, and we'll talk about this when we look at the uh, LA fire safety code handout that's coming, um, but it has, you know, things of you want an aisleway from the door to each room that's three feet wide. So we mark out three feet on that, or we don't want things piled higher than three feet along the walls. So you, along the walls, you start to mark out where that three feet is. So this can be really helpful to kind of have visual boundaries for people and blue painters tape is super cheap. So it's really a, a helpful uh, tool. Okay, another thing that um, our acquirers can do is an exercise that you can do with them or they can do on their own and it's called a non-shopping trip. So um, the client goes to wherever they frequent uh, for stuff like, um, for me, it's Target. I go to Target. I call it the $99 store because I can't leave for less than $99. And I go in there and I do what I would usually do. And I put stuff in that I don't need, but I still want. And I put in the stuff and then I get all the way around Target and I have everything in my basket. And then I have to put it all back. And I have to sit with the feelings about not being able to buy and bring home what I wanted to bring home. Because remember, it's really all about the feelings rather than the stuff itself. It's the attachment to the stuff and the need to have it for some purpose. Um, so these shopping trips can help you, like exposure therapy, go from a level 10 all the way down, hopefully. Um, and just deal with the feelings as, as opposed to avoiding the feelings. And you can practice this too with people that do online shopping. You could fill up your you know, Amazon shopping cart with stuff and then you delete it. Or you can move it to a wish list or something so you don't delete it forever. Um, or uh, TV shopping like QVC, you can just keep a journal of all the stuff you would have purchased. But again, it's most important is to sit with the feelings of discomfort for having not been able to acquire what you wanted to acquire. So here's where the vision plan really comes in handy. So when you're sitting there going through your stuff and you have your keep box and your discard box and all of that, you pick up the thing. Um, the question someone already always asks themselves when they are looking at it is like, do I want this or could I use this? Well, if you're someone with hoarding disorder, the answer is always going to be yes. But we want to make a new question instead. Is holding this, 
keep helping me to achieve my vision for how I want to live and how I want my space to function or is holding on to this working against my vision? Two totally different questions might have two totally different answers. And what's most important here is this is all about what they want. This is giving them autonomy and what they want as opposed to you telling them, oh, you don't need that, that's just trash. We should throw that away. So this is them working towards their vision of how they wanna live. So this can be kind of life-changing. Okay, and more about rules and stuff. Um, this is another way to help clients who are having the difficulty with decision-making. So when they're deciding what to keep, you know, I only need five pairs of black pants in my wardrobe. I only need to have two sets of dishes. I only need three bachelor, uh, spatulas. If I buy a t-shirt, I have to discard a t-shirt. Um, maybe they're like artsy craftsy people. I have a lot of artists who, who hoard stuff. So um, this person's a real knitter and they had so much yarn. So we decided that their house could only hold, you know, two um, kind of big plastic bins of yarn and then it wouldn't be too cluttered. So if my yarn box is full, I need to use what I have before buying more. Or if I bring in more yarn, I have to let go of something to make room for the yarn. Um, and then you can also do like an acquiring set of rules. Uh, there's a really good one that's um, in the Buried in Treasures book about one about uh, page 120 something. Um, but anyway, so it could be like, you have to check off all the things. You have to answer all the questions in a certain way before you're allowed to take something home um, on your shopping trip. So um, do I plan to use it within the next month? Do I have a place to put it so it doesn't add to the clutter? Do I already own something similar? Could I manage without it? Do I have enough time to fix this or use this? Or do I have more important priorities? So kind of maybe taking that whatever list that you come up with and you know having it put them in, in their purse put it in their wallet so that when they're out at goodwill or dumpster diving or at target or wherever they go for their stuff they have to answer those questions when you're working with special populations like seniors or people with disabilities there are some extra concerns that you might have to take note of um, if they're on medications, can they find them? Maybe you can help them have like a home for their medications so they're stored properly and they don't get lost. Um, do they have a daily schedule so that they can take them at the appropriate times? You know, maybe you can help them by setting some alarms to remind them when to take their pills. Uh, can they move safely in their home? This might be the first priority uh, for them because if they're like fragile or, or, or weak or something, you know, getting around if you're using a walker with all of that stuff, that could be really dangerous if they fall. Um, can Do they have the physical ability to do the work of decluttering? Um, if they don't, like, can they get help? Like, is there someone that they can trust or that you can help train to get in there to help them with the decluttering? Um, there might be financial constraints you have to be concerned with. So you can maybe connect them to uh, social service professionals to help them get funding for whatever they might need. And then also like, this happens with people without these special concerns too, but just feelings like that they're 
not in control of things. Because when you have a disability or when you're a senior and you start, you know, not having control, you're not, I can't drive anymore, or I'm not allowed to do this anymore. I have trouble, you know, standing up or doing this. And you have to rely on other people to do a lot of stuff. We want to make sure that the decisions that they're making are their own decisions. We want to keep them as autonomous as possible. Um, and then two, like there might be times where we have to look at someone possibly getting conserved because they aren't able to make these decisions and care for themselves in the way that they need to in order to stay healthy and safe. So um, a lot of you that work particularly with like uh, DMH or DMH contracted agencies, you probably have to do a lot of note taking and you have to have goals and all of that kind of stuff. So here's, these are just some ideas for different goals for clients with hoarding, um, improve their quality of life, improve functionality of the target areas, improve their organizational skills, improve their decision-making skills, improve their relationships, reduce acquisition and replace with healthier activities and learn problem-solving skills. So those are just some ideas. And as promised, um, talking about why uh, HD might be higher among the um, unhoused. There was a study um, out of New York that said that up to 22% of the unhoused may have hoarding disorder. Um, and like we talked about, people with HD are more likely to be evicted or lose their homes. And then if they're genetically predisposed, the trauma of being unhoused or on the streets may be the trauma that sparks or turns on the HD in their brains and they start hoarding when they never had before. So um, how is it different when you're dealing with someone who is unhoused? Um, generally, as you guys are, I'm sure aware, there tends to be more severe comorbid mental health issues with the unhoused. Um, we, we talked about how in general, about 70% of those that have HD have some kind of comorbid mental health issue. My experience has been that when working with the homeless population, those comorbid mental health issues are gonna be much more severe. Depression, bipolar, substance abuse, PTSD, anxiety, psychotic disorders, all very common. Um, there also tends to be a deficit, particularly when you're dealing with someone with chronic homelessness, of uh, a deficit of life skills knowledge. Many people who have become homeless have not had a child that was conducive to learning many of the life skills that we were taught as children and take for granted. Um, a lot of this population may have grown up in foster care or group homes or even on the streets or perhaps in juvenile detention centers. And might not have been taught skills like um, meal planning or housekeeping, budgeting, or even laundry. And now that they're adults, they might feel a great deal of shame about not having this knowledge. And so maybe they're not likely to ask for help with that. And also, as you're probably aware, a lot of chronic health problems uh, for the, particularly the chronically homeless, probably unaddressed health problems, uh, diabetes, heart conditions, HIV and hepatitis. Um, and for whatever reason, they have not been addressing these issues and they're not physically well. Um, and then of course, duh, economic issues uh, that are vastly different from your typical middle-class hoarding disorder client. 
For instance, when you're trying to get someone to discard an item and the reason your client wants to keep it is because I might need it later, it's pretty easy to ask Jill from Encino, who can afford to buy a new roll of scotch tape if she needs it, to let it go. It's much harder to ask Leona from Skid Row, who genuinely cannot replace it if she needs it later, because she might need it to trade or to sell. So that makes it even more complicated. So this kind of begs the question, particularly when you're dealing with uh, the, the unhoused or the formerly unhoused, is it hoarding or is it something else? So a lot of times things like depression, um, mis misuse uh, or substance addiction, substance misuse, psychotic disorders, or just a lack of life skills that we were talking about can make the home look cluttered and messy and like, like someone who's hoarding. Um, I used to run a, a practicum program for graduate psychology students at Skid Row Housing Trust, and we would provide therapy to residents who were hoarding in the hopes that we could stop them from being evicted. Oftentimes, we'd get referrals from case managers thinking it's a hoarding case, but when we went in to assess the situation, we find that it falls into some of these other categories instead. For instance, this picture, this is not from one of our clients at Skid Row. This is something I found on the internet. This is, this is the home of a meth addict, uh, and it looks like a hoarded situation. This is not to say that you can't have one of these issues like depression or a psychotic disorder or a lack of life skills and have hoarding disorder, but we want to kind of tease out the two because we're going to deal with it in different ways. So kind of a quick and dirty, pardon the pun, way to, to figure out if it's hoarding or not is to just ask you know, someone, how would you feel about getting rid of uh, some of the things in your space? If the reaction is relief, or maybe ambivalence, it's probably not hoarding disorder. But if the reaction is panic or defensiveness or even anger, that might be a pretty good clue that you might be looking at hoarding disorder. Okay, so let's talk about uh, hoarding and harm reduction. We're moving into our more resistant clientele. So you probably are familiar with harming, harm reduction when we talk about things like uh, substance use or misuse. Um, and so something like um, a methadone clinic per se. So we don't want you using heroin. So instead we're gonna have a needle exchange. So you have clean needles, so you don't get uh, HIV AIDS or other kinds of uh, needle transmissible type of diseases. And we're going to give you methadone because it's safer and we can monitor you than the heroin. So, uh, and something like harm reduction is um, wearing a seatbelt. Uh, it's, you, you can't guarantee that if you are driving in your car that you're not going to get in an accident. But if we wear a seatbelt, your chances of um, safety go up exponentially. <laughs> so the goal of harm reduction is to minimize the health and safety risks to the client. So the, this is gonna assume that your client is not open to changing their hoarding behavior, but is more open to getting help from others to manage the problem for her. Um, so it could be, and oftentimes we get into kind of motivating them to make some changes about their health and safety through their health and safety issues, which we'll talk about in just a sec. Um, 
So also we want, when we're thinking about managing these kinds of cases, we're gonna use harm reduction for as long as the client is at risk. And since the client's brain is wired to be to do hoarding, then that's gonna be a really long time. Um, and then think about harm reduction with first do no harm. Um, think of the potential for harm in each quote unquote helping act. Is this gonna cause the client to get evicted? Will a big clean out traumatize them and leave them hoarding as before? Or once the emergency is over, we wanna think about these things before we get involved and make decisions about, about harm reduction. Um, and then the main goal is just to create a plan to minimize the risks associated with severe hoarding. So a good harm reduction plan identifies what must be done in the living environment to bring it to a minimum level of safety and figuring out who's gonna do the work, how are they going to go about doing the work, how long is it gonna take, and who's gonna monitor it afterwards to keep it from going back to the way it was. So step-by-step. Step. So there's a few different things to think about when you're looking at harm reduction, and we're gonna talk about each of these in detail. So first we have the initial harm assessment. We're going to assess the level of risk in the home. Um, maybe we'll do that homes assessment or look at the clutter image rating. And then we're going to note the identified targets for the harm, uh, harm reduction agreement. So, um, you know, maybe it's like the, the papers by this by the gas stove, or maybe it's the stuff that is like, you know, piled seven feet high that could fall on them. What are the, the health and safety concerns that you want to target and like kind of identify them very specifically? Um, this may or may not apply, but now that you've identified the health and safety issues in the home, you may want to think about what's called a modified clean out as a means to address them. ASAP. So there are two kinds of cleanouts. You know, there's the one that you see on those hoarding shows. Those are full cleanouts, top to bottom. Every single thing gets addressed. Everything gets, you know, looked at to decide if we take it or we throw it away. A modified cleanout is just looking at what are the very specific health and safety issues in this space. How are we going to address them? Um, these even the modified cleanouts can cause greater hoarding in the end because it the trauma is so severe to the to the client that it makes them hoard even you know more afterwards. Um, but the client should understand that this cleanout is the beginning of the process and will last as long as the client is at risk in their living environment. Uh, and we want to plan this really carefully. Um, so it's really necessary to have a plan in place before it starts and to discuss the plan with your client. So um, once you have it scheduled, maybe you're having several meetings with the client to prep him and support him through this. How are we going to make this easier for him? Does the client want to be on site during this or off site during the clean out? Is the client worried about nosy neighbors? Maybe we can create like some tarps or something to block everything from view so they don't have the shame of seeing all their stuff going in and out. Um, the plan also includes who's gonna be there for the clean out, what their specific roles are, and how participants are going to deal with and dispose of items. So we're gonna make rules for disposing of stuff. 
So, and then also prep your client that mistakes will be made because there's a lot of stuff to go through and we're going to be doing it pretty quickly. So there might be stuff that we didn't mean to throw out that we said we wouldn't throw out that might get thrown out. And so you want to prepare them for this. Um, so yeah, so and then making rules of like what you're going to throw out and, and what you're going to keep. So maybe the rule is discard all expired food or discard anything that has mold on it, those kinds of rules. And then it could also be the keep, keep all photographs, keep all um, sewing things, whatever. Um, and then after a big clean out like that, it's really good to have a, at least a three day recovery period. So if it's possible that just for three days after a clean out, they get to stay with a friend or a family member or a neighbor because when they're alone in their apartment or their home and it's been like what they feel like ravaged and attacked um, to live in that space uh, feels really traumatizing. So if they don't have to be there for a few days, that can be really helpful too. And here's that thing um, I've been telling you about that you have a uh, PDF of. So uh, working with the hoarding task force with the LA County Department of Mental Health, they uh, developed this thing called the LA Fire Code Safety and Evacuation Standards. And what I love about this is that it's not personal. It's not um, you know, pointing a finger and saying, you need to do this because these are rules that apply to everybody. This applies to their landlord, this applies to their neighbor, this applies to me, this applies to their Aunt Sally. Everybody has to have these health and safety standards in place. Um, and they're neutral party rules. And you can usually kind of talk about these rules without their defenses going up because it does apply to everybody. Um, and what I really like about it is that it also gives you the reason. So it's not just this random thing, like it's telling you to do this, but it tells you why this rule is in place. So for instance, the second one says, aisles to all rooms, three foot clearance measured with a yardstick, four feet to allow EMTs access to be on one or both sides of the stretcher during emergencies and not to fall down. Reason. Firefighters in full gear and stretcher to access all rooms, front and back door, hallways, bedrooms, kitchen, and bathroom. So it's not just a random thing that you need a three foot wide clearance. Well, why do we need it? Because a stretcher, a gurney is three feet wide. And when you're kind of making these um, demands or suggestions to your client, they're, you know, they might be like, what's that for? Like, but if you kind of bring in that health and safety thing, it's like, hey, look, I really care about your health. And like, what if there were an emergency? What if, God forbid, you, you fell down and broke your hip or you were having a, a heart attack or a stroke? We want to be able to open the door, have the firefighters with their three foot wide gurney be able to bring it directly to you, put you on and get you out as quickly as possible so we can get you life-saving medical care. And most people can buy into that if they can't buy into the, we need to throw away your stuff because it's not healthy. Um, so this, that's why I really love using this. And this is also where you can use the blue painter's tape quite a bit by you know, putting out those three foot wide aisles, that swing of the door. Um, any, any, and then when you've cleared a space, 
so that you don't kind of get it dirty again or you don't reclutter it, you know, putting some um, visual boundaries with the painter's tape around the spaces you've cleared and having a maintenance plan so that it doesn't get recluttered. Okay, so we've talked about having very clearly identified targets. And not all of these targets necessarily are environmental or about the clutter. There could be targets that are goals, as another word, for um, rules for your acquisition, for bringing stuff in, for your shopping, um, physical health goals, um, psychological goals, social goals. Um, but we need to make sure that you might have heard this term before, SMART goals. And SMART, which we'll talk about in a second, stands for specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound. And then also we want to develop some kind of monitoring plan so that once we've done a modified cleanout or once we've started to clean things out, how do we make sure that it doesn't get all cluttered up again? So let's talk more specifically about SMART goals and, and how it relates to clutter in particular. Um, so we'll start with specific. We wanna be very clear and unambiguous in our language about what is expected of this goal. So if I told you to go clean your shower tonight and we came back the next day, we'd all have very different looking showers because we all have very different ideas of what it means to clean the shower. So we wanna be very specific. So we have something general like keep your shower and tub clean versus something very specific like keep only the items you use to bathe in the shower and tub and wash the shower and tub every other week with uh, you know, the soft soap or with this particular cleaning project, product and use the sponge. Um, a general idea of a goal would be keep the stairs clear, a very specific, Keep the stairs clear of all the clutter from the ground floor to the first floor. So measurable, we wanna specify how much or how many and how the team member knows that the goal has been achieved. So examples could be keep clutter at least 12 inches away from the stovetop. Keep stacks of paper no higher than 24 inches. Keep clutter out of the taped swing areas of the front and back doors so that the doors are able to fully open. Um, three, achievable. Is this goal realistic given what some of the client's challenges are? Because we really want to continue to build wins for the client because this client has probably been trying to declutter on their own for years and years and just hasn't had the tools. Remember, they've been working with the screwdriver and not the shovel. Um, so we want to build in as many wins as possible. Uh, will the, the client require help physically moving things? Can the client only work for 10 minutes a day? So how much help do we need to give this client so that it's actually achievable, all of these goals? Relevant. Uh, focus on minimizing risk and when possible, increasing the comfort of the client. Remember, we're really only concerned with harm reduction with safety enhancing goals, not just comfort or aesthetic goals. So an example might be, if the goal is to clear the couch of clutter, that does not necessarily increase the safety of the client. That may be a target for later on if the client wants to increase their comfort once the safety issues have been managed. And then finally, time bound. 
have a specific target date for each goal. Whereas with the non-resistant clients, we were trying not to, we were working with time in a different way, like just work for 20 minutes a day and you've done it perfectly. And we had no actual thing like by April 1st, you'll have your whole living room clear of clutter. Not great. But this time we need to have more time bound goals. So the first four stairs of are clear of clutter by next week. That would be a good example of a time bound goal. So I talked about how there are things besides environmental or clutter goals or targets that we have. Um, so environmental goal, obviously like discard food after expiration date on food level or keep the clutter 24 inches away from the furnace. An acquisitional goal might be thinking about how do things get into the home? Are they shopping? Do they have subscriptions? Do they get them as gifts? So a goal might be destroy all but one credit card and give that credit card to your son to hold or permit Ellen to remove your name from junk mail lists. Um, and then physical goals, talking about physical health solutions. So our goal is gonna be to visit your physician in the next month, or maybe it's medication solutions is organizing medications to keep it all in one place with alarms that tell you when to take it. Psychological goals, maybe the goal is to make an appointment to meet with a therapist, or maybe the goal is to take your medication as your psychiatrist prescribed. And then finally, social capacity. Severe hoarding can result in very low social capacity, as many people with HD have isolated themselves from friends or family um, or other social supports for fear of someone discovering their clutter issue because they're ashamed or because their relationships have become strained or difficult. On the flip side, severe hoarding can result from low social capacity. Um, social anxiety can cause clients to become withdrawn and isolated or the client is depressed or has PTSD or only feels safe in the home. Either way, that low social capacity can exacerbate the hoarding problem. So maybe some goals could be, you know, call Mary twice a week to check in and chat or attend your church services on Sunday and Bible studies on Wednesday. So I hope that's clear. I'm gonna pause for questions. There was a question. What if it's a two person unit where one tries to work on their homework, getting rid of clutter, but their partner is not quite there yet and instead brings in more clutter since the home is starting to look like there is more room? Oh, that's a good question. So you have two people who are hoarding and one is working on it and one is not helping at all because they don't want to make any changes. Um, perhaps a good idea would be to use that blue painter's tape to start to like make boundaries for the places so that, you know, I'm assuming that the person who is still bringing in the clutter is at least willing to work with you and isn't going to just bring stuff and, and all of that. So that could be helpful. And also maybe creating um, boundaries in the space for the person who's decluttering and boundaries. For, so it's like, this is, you know, her side of the bed and this is her side of the room. Um, God, it sounds like a, one of those old sitcoms where they put a line you know, down the middle of the floor, and this is my side, and this is your side, but maybe that could be helpful, or maybe too, it would be about um, 
talking to the talking to both roommates about what their mutual goals are and what their vision plans are and seeing if there's any ambiguity in the person who's a little resistant towards um, towards finding their way to, to getting motivated to change. So um, like I, I used to work with this guy who was an artist and he had so many art supplies and like found, like he did found art, you know, so we like get what we would call garbage off the street and collect it. And, you know, to use in these art installations that he was going to make, but his rooms were so cluttered that he had no space to make art. So a motivation for him, even though he didn't want to get rid of anything was, well, I'm getting all this stuff, but I don't get to use it. I don't get to to make my art. So maybe there might be some ambiguity in that with that person, or maybe just, you know, really kind of laying down the law, but really addressing what are the specific health and safety concerns. And if they can get on board, at least with those, at least trying to make sure that the health and safety targets are being addressed. Um, that's kind of without knowing that a lot of the details, those are some ideas that I had. I hope that's helpful. Okay. And then just making a comment here, uh, when you were talking about folks who are unhoused, um, and they said they, people experiencing homelessness, also have a stronger attachment to their items due to how much they have lost in their lives. They hold on to as much as possible for personal and financial attachment. Yep, totally agree. That's why I said it's like, it's a lot easier to ask Jill from Encino to let go of whatever you're asking her to let go of than it is to let, you know, Leona from Skid Row, because honestly, like they can make a good argument for why they need it more than somebody else. So yeah, it, it's, it's a much more challenging situation. It's much more nuanced. It's not as clear. Um, and I think that's why the harm reduction thing can be helpful because that you're focusing on the health and safety issues um, and, and also making sure you know, and if they're in like, because the Skid Row Housing Trust, where I used to have that practicum that I um, worked at was um, permanent supportive housing. So even though we were asking them to get rid of things that they probably could use, they were in a place where they would be supported that if they did need something, if they had a real need, like a life and death need, we could find a way to give it to them. So that was helpful. Um, but yeah, it is way more challenging with the unhoused. And then finally was asking, do you have any numbers of HD clients who recovered and those who deteriorated? Um, so the most success we have are most success I've had are with my unicorns that have been able to well, it's, okay, so it's about managing one's expectations. So knowing that most likely their homes aren't going to look like the cover of Better Homes and Gardens. So if we can really figure out what are the goals, and usually that has to do with health and safety or with the unicorn clients, what their vision plan is, you're more likely to achieve, you know, getting into a place of maintenance let, and it's always going to be maintenance. It's, it's, it's like someone who's a drug addict is always going to be a drug addict because that's how their brain is wired. HD is how their brain is wired. So we're always just going to always have to maintain and manage it. 
Um, but, uh, but there's a lot of people that get frustrated and they decide that it's too uncomfortable to sit with all of the distress and anxiety that comes with letting their stuff go. So they choose not to engage in therapy anymore, or they choose, I'd rather be evicted and use the money to, uh, and live on the street and use the money to, that I get it for my disability or my general relief to rent storage spaces and keep all my stuff in there. But I don't want to lose my stuff. I'd rather lose my housing than lose my stuff. And we have to be willing to respect their decision that for whatever reason, they're not ready yet and that their priorities are not our priorities, which is really hard. But I mean, there is hope. I mean, I, I found that with the harm reduction approach, I have a lot better, a lot more success because harm reduction too, which I, I have like a much longer, more detailed harm reduction presentation that I do. Um, and, and it's working with like the landlords and the property managers and the housing authority or whoever you're working with to um, manage everybody's expectations. Maybe like upon move-in, everyone, regardless of their HD status, is given a copy of those fire and safety standards, you know, like so that everyone knows upon, or maybe it's written into the lease agreement. So, you know, and then working with the property manager and being like, look, you are not going to like the way that, you know, it looks in the end, but you need to tell me in very concrete terms what is acceptable and what is not acceptable um, before you evict. And we, if we can get it to the acceptable, just know that, again, it's not Martha Stewart would have an aneurysm looking at the room and you might, too. But if you if all of these health and safety standards have been achieved, that's good enough. So, yeah, I mean, it is possible. I think the harm reduction seems to be the most helpful. And then if you have a very motivated and willing client who's willing to stick in there and like understand that it's about tolerating the uncomfortable emotions, it can be helpful. Um, good. I think we're okay because I only have a couple more slides. Great. Um, so teaching skills. Uh, so as we talked about, people with HD have a lot of trouble with decision making and you can help them uh, by teaching them some decision-making processes through questions and rules. So we like the rules. We talked about that. Questions, a um, little bit different. So just being, again, curious. Oh, why do you have this here? Is there another place we might be able to put this? If you can't do without it, can we pick another place to put it? Is it safe for you to keep this here? Does keeping this make you more uncomfortable in your home? Is it safe for you to keep this or keep so many of these? So those kinds of questions um, kind of teach, are starting to teach them to question these things that just don't come automatically for them. And then again, uh, the rules might look a little bit different than with like our unicorn clients, but um, the rules are newspapers that are more than one month old go in the recycle bin. Discard any food that's beyond its expiration date. If I acquire a new item of clothing, I have to discard an item of clothing to make room. Um, a lot of people I've worked with, they have endless projects where they like find things on the street and they fix it up with this idea that they're going to sell it or give it to somebody. Um, so maybe I only have room for three projects 
in my space at a time. So if I go out and I see something to fix and bring it home, I've, I already have three projects going. I either have to get rid of one of those projects before I bring it in or not bring in this project. Um, and then maybe I won't go shopping by myself unless I have a list that's approved by my daughter. So these are all good rules and questions that you can start to teach them. So they start to kind of think in a more maintenance mode. Okay, so uh, last but not least, as you're well aware, the work we do is very challenging and working with these kinds of clients with the HD and, and people that are, you're doing F FSP, oh my God, those are the most challenging clients too. So um, give yourself a break. It often feels very lonely and oftentimes there might not be a solution because that person might not be willing to make a change. And like I said, they might be willing to take the consequences of an eviction versus getting rid of their stuff. And we have to be okay with that and respect they're not there yet. Um, success is we have to kind of look at it in a different way. It's gonna look and feel different for everybody. Um, really reach out, uh, seek assistance, contact the professionals like myself uh, and other resources in your area for help. You don't have to do this by yourself. Um, and then we have to be the ones that are the advocates and the educators for our clients. So remember that. And also, also, also very important, we all preach self-care, but very few of us practice self-care. So um, oftentimes when I'm doing some of these trainings, I'll have people write in the chat box, you know, what do you do for self-care? And if you can't think of anything, it probably means you're pretty burned out and you're in desperate need of some self-care. Um, and remember, you've chosen the job and the profession you've chosen because we want to work with the difficult clients. And, you know, try not to take it home with you, try to practice the self-care and try to take in all of the positive stuff, the small wins that we all get along the way. Whew. All right, so with that, I will open it up to questions. For HD clients who have experienced loss, what is the neurological process of why HD clients fill the void with their hoard? Mm -hmm. I think, a for a, a, I don't know, like specifically, like, you know, parts of the brain and stuff, uh, what's going on in particular, but people's attachment, people with HD, their attachment to objects are the same as their attachment to people um, and animals. Um, and a lot of time, a lot of times you'll see uh, people holding on to stuff of loved ones they've lost, like a parent or a spouse, or even sadly a child, um, and letting go of that stuff. It's it's that's their connection, and um, and they're and they're holding on to it as their connection. And also, too, um, relationships are hard, as you probably know, and. Um, Stuff and animals don't talk back to you. Stuff and animals don't abuse you. Um, so having a relationship with your stuff or with an animal is a lot easier and more pleasant than having a relationship with a human. Um, and also like 
with animals, it's different because animals die. But uh, with your stuff, you don't have to let go of your stuff. You can keep it forever and you'll always have it. You don't, you don't lose it. So I think the stuff when you're talking about loss is the stuff that's your relationship that you're holding on to. So you don't grieve the loss of that. I hope that answered your question. And then there was another question or a statement. And they say some of our FSP clients just passed away without giving up their stuff, despite our offers for help. Very frustrating. Oh yeah, that's hard. That's hard. And then another question, are there still hoarding task forces during the pandemic? If so, what's the referral process? Yeah, so at least the, the LA County hoarding task force is more of a, educational and like uh, it's it's not like a bunch of people you can call and they'll they'll come in and like start cleaning your home uh kind of a thing uh they do have through la la dmh does have a program called the genesis program as you may or may not be aware um and it, it works with older adults and they specifically have uh staff that know about hoarding because they actually sponsor the hoarding task force for la county so that might be a good referral is if you can referral uh refer to the the genesis program with la county dmh um and yeah and other than that i mean you can every every month the hoarding task force does meet and you can come um, they're doing it via Zoom and you can come and you can bring a case that you would like some help with to kind of to talk through it. Um, and then a, a service that I offer is I do work uh, once a month with different agencies that have a lot of hoarding clients and I'll do what's called a hoarding work group. Uh, for about an hour once a month where everyone in the agency can come via Zoom and bring their hoarding cases. And I'll do like a little brief intro about what hoarding disorder is. And then we'll talk about specific cases and strategize on, on how, to, um, how to work with them. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, unfortunately there's just, there just aren't enough uh, therapists or professionals who know about hoarding disorder or know what to do with hoarding disorder. And it's probably a lot because of hoarding is kind of a, a new diagnosis. Um, like to give you kind of a perspective on it, uh, when I was doing my dissertation in grad school, uh, I did it about hoarding. And most people, when they're doing a dissertation, like they have to get like super duper specific, like so you get titles of like, you know, schizophrenia in, Latino males ages, you know, 14 to 40, who also suffer from, you know, IBS. I mean, it's just super duper specific because there's so much research out there. You have to get that specific when you're doing um, more uh, looks at it. My uh, hoarding thing, which I did in 2011, 2010, 2011, was titled Hoarding Symptoms, Diagnosis and Treatment. Because there was just so little known and so researched about it. There was nothing there that I was able to just do like a whole dissertation about hoarding. <laughs> um, and then how would you help someone to notice they may need help if someone does not see it as a problem and becomes angry when help is offered? Where would you start with someone like this? Um, I, would, I, I would, again, approach as an ally and be really curious. 
um, oh, you know, and I think like one, one of the, the psychologists that's, that I, I've met and worked with uh, that I admire a lot, he goes into these situations and asks them, wow, what do you like about this? What do you like about your stuff? You know, what's cool about this? What's great? Because they're happy to tell you all of that. And I guarantee you, no one has asked them that. And then you could ask like, is there anything that you wish you could change? Is there anything that makes you unhappy? And that's kind of that way in. That's where you find out about, well, you know, I'm an artist and I have no room to do my art or I like to cook and I have nowhere to cook. And that's really frustrating. That's kind of that inroad. And if you can't make an inroad there, again, if, if you, you know, if there's things like eviction or other kind of issues happening, going that health and safety route saying it's like, hey, I am not here to take away your stuff, but I am worried about your health and safety. And here's why, like, you know, I, I want a stretcher to be able to come through. Like, does that concern you or have you thought about that? So I would approach it that way. Awesome. There is uh, one more question was saying that at the shower project where she works, uh, we have, they have a client who comes to the clothing shed or the food table and asks for endless things way beyond what they can wear, carry, or eat. Seems like hoarding. Are there behaviors we can adopt, ways to set limits in the moment without annoying the client or causing further harm? I mean, I guess you could you can just have rules set in place, again, rules about like how much you can take or, uh, you know, how much you're allowed to, to offer those kinds of things. Um, and then of course, you know, you want to be sensitive to special situations because there are special situations. You'd be like, if, if you have something that's, you know, a, a need that's greater than that, let's sit and discuss it. Um, but yeah, I mean, cause I, I've worked too, like I've done um, some trainings with, with shelters and they have a big problem with hoarding issues. And obviously they don't have a lot of places to store, you know, their stuff. So what, what, what I always advise them is just be very, very clear about what the rules are, what the boundaries are for stuff, what you can bring in, what you can't bring in, like right from the get-go. So they know what they're getting into and they can make the choice of whether or not they want to avail themselves of those services. So the more you are clear and enforce the rules and the boundaries, the easier it gets. Oh, and I, I left my website, drdanny.com. Um, if you guys want, you know, if your agencies would like to have me come do a training or to do like that hoarding work group and check in and strategize with some hoarding cases, you know, that's how you would reach me. Thank you so much, Danny. This was wonderful. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs>